I'm, uh, I'm 100% confident there's something in the biblical text that says we shouldn't be jealous of each other's gifts, but I am feeling that way uh, right now. That was absolutely beautiful, Amaris. Thank you uh, for that. Well, I think you probably know at this point that I always appreciate the opportunity to be with you here at Wyzetta. I have so enjoyed the friendship with Kevin over all of these years, a dear friend now, and the relationships that I've had over all these years since growing up. I know I say it each time I'm in this pulpit, but it feels sort of surreal to think that as a 10, 11, and 12-year-old boy, my parents came to this church and so much of my faith was formed here. And so it's always a delight to come back and to meet new people and people that are on the worship team, new to me and delightful to be with. And uh, kind of feel like I'd rather just sit out there and keep singing this morning rather than do this deal. It has just been delightful. And I've enjoyed hearing about the sermon series, about the changing of names. Kevin has kept me abreast of the situation and talking about the way and why and how names change in the biblical text, sometimes from Abram to Abraham or Sarai to Sarah or possibly Jacob to Israel. And I don't know about you, but it's one of those things in the biblical text that I think growing up I would have read, but just thought maybe the authors didn't really have a clue what was going on and they got confused at times. They didn't understand the significance of the change of name. And so I've appreciated this series and seeing that God so often invites us to walk in new kinds of ways in our lives. And when he does so, there's a new name attached to that. And so Kevin asked me to come this morning and talk about the name change from Simon to Peter. And of course, I think probably, as you know as well, Kevin and I like to have a little fun banter back and forth, and so the texts in this situation were almost endless from Kevin, where he's like, you know, Kapsner, you're such a diva, you're only going to come if I give you the assignment where you talk about your name, Peter, and... And then he'd be like, and you know, Peter means rock, and you and Dwayne Johnson have so much in common. It's like the bald head, and then he kind of stopped there for some reason. Had to remind him that, you know, Kevin, when we're in public, I have to wear big shirts to hide my python-like biceps so you don't feel intimidated uh, by me. I have to be a little bit careful, though, when I uh, make fun of Kevin from the pulpit, because he does kind of have the ultimate trump card on me. I think he played it last time I was in the pulpit, uh, up on the screen here. Now... (laughs) And I just, I can't unsee that image. I can't get that. It's like burned in the trauma centers of my brain right now. I I do want to say it took me, I was killing it. I was graduating from Edinburgh, and I thought, I can get this kilt on. And the first 15 minutes were going swimmingly. I had a YouTube video with bagpipes in the background playing. And I was putting on this kilt and had the little sword. And then I got to lacing up the shoes. And I think that took me almost an hour at that point. And I still don't know what I did in those moments. But I will say it must have worked because on the train from a small town outside of Edinburgh to Edinburgh, I had a woman, I think she was 164 years old, and she was ogling me the entire time. It was awesome. (laughs) Hallie wasn't even a bit insecure. It was fabulous. So I have to be careful what I say about Kevin. I am actually really glad uh, to be here and to talk about this name change deal. From Simon to Peter, there's incredible implications, I think, for all of our journeys in this story. It's one of somebody who had to learn uh, to go from the power of this world to the humility of the kingdom. And when he did do that, the church was birthed. And in those places, I think we can see that the fundamental road and way into the church is so often different than the road and way into the kingdoms of this world. And that is one of humility and brokenness and failure. It's what wakes us up to the amazing grace, and we bend our knee, 
and come into the kingdom. It'll be the dynamic we talk about today. But before we pray and get started, my son Caleb, sitting in the front row, sent me a funny comic uh, this week that I think is going to come up there, too. I love this about the name change deal. It says, uh, here's your order, sir, a thousand business cards saying, Simon the Fisherman. Simon, from now on, your name will be Peter. (laughs) So let's pray as we get started. We'll get into this great story of humility, brokenness, failure, and restoration. God, I'm grateful for the wind of your spirit blowing among us this morning. It brings life to my soul. And for the beautiful people following Jesus, walking out this journey in this place, we're all together as your church, continuing the best we can in our own failures and brokenness to say yes to you. So we ask you to minister by your spirit in ways we simply can't do on our own yet again this morning and in the weeks ahead. Thank you for your grace among us. By the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, if we go straight to the point of this moment between Jesus and Peter, where we see this name change, we see this well-known interchange between the two of them occur in Matthew 16. And it's during a time in which Jesus, after many months of ministry with his disciples, and they've been following him around and seeing what he's been doing and the power demonstrated, uh, Jesus finally turns to them and he asks them this question, who do you say that I am? Which is really the question through generation and decades and centuries that remains in front of us. Who do you say that I am? And Peter stood up among the twelve disciples and he responded to Jesus with these words. He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, yep, you're right. And I tell you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, both your life, Peter, and the confession you just made, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Now, this was new for Peter, because when they first met, Jesus did tell Peter that his name would shift from Simon to Peter. It happened in an interchange early in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, but Jesus didn't indicate during that first interchange between them the, the meaning or significance of the name. So it's at this time in Matthew 16 that Jesus reveals a bit more to Peter and says, you will be called Peter, and on you in this confession of faith I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And maybe we look back at the story from the perspective of 2,000 years later, and it may not register, at least it doesn't for me, just the enormity of this moment, the significance of this proclamation that Jesus made in this time for his disciples because it would have been for them symbolizing and signifying some sort of redemptive moment that they probably couldn't really anticipate. They didn't know maybe what Jesus was up to. What is this church? What are you talking about here, Jesus? So to get our heads around sort of the enormity of this moment between Jesus and the disciples, it would actually be helpful to get out of sort of the specificity of this interchange between Peter and Jesus and get back into the big picture of history of what had predated this moment and how Israel would have perceived of themselves and the promises that were to come. So if we rewind about uh, three, four, five hundred years somewhere in that neighborhood, we, we find a moment in time in, in Israel's history in the Old Testament where there's a prophecy uttered by the prophet Joel. We see it in Joel chapter 2, verse 29. We'll put it up in just a second, but I uh, won't put it up now. And Joel's prophecy came at a time for Israel in which uh, they were in significant decline and being threatened to be wiped out. 
The Assyrians from the north were taking out the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. Babylon was coming soon to take out the final two tribes of the southern kingdom. And in the midst of all of this darkness moving forward, Joel offered this prophecy that was this prophecy of redemptive hope. That somewhere in the darkness of the turmoil that was to come, God would birth a new kind of people. It was a redemptive move that up until that time was unprecedented in the history of Israel. And so Joel has this prophecy. We can read it now. It says, and afterward, after this time of desolation, when darkness is going to hit you, I will pour out my spirit on all people. In fact, even your sons and your daughters will prophesy or speak the truth of the kingdom. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. It's incredible prophetic moment in this. And I think if we had been standing there with those disciples at that time, thinking about what is this redemptive community going to look like, we couldn't have possibly anticipated this. For though the Spirit was active in the Old Testament, the Spirit was pretty relegated to certain individuals or certain moments in Israel's history. There were times in which the Spirit was active, maybe in in Joshua or Samson, to help lead the people into some redemptive moments. Joshua and Samson having bent their knees in humility and trusting God and following out. Maybe the Spirit was active in prophets like Ezekiel or Amos, who simply humbly said, Here I am, Lord. And God used them then to bring the prophetic word of truth to the community of Israel. But the Spirit being poured out on all people... Sons and daughters would prophesy. Everybody would be part of this deal, not just relegated to one person. The disciples, I think, at this point would have been slightly confused had they anticipated something like that. It's the church. We know it now. But for them, nothing like that had ever occurred. Well, fast forward a couple hundred years later, and this prophetic event of Joel is on the cusp now of happening. We see the beginnings of it in the life of Jesus, where he appears in the scene and the star of Bethlehem is there, and this prophet, or so they think just a prophet, and Jesus is emerging on the scene. And again, in these moments, God had been silent in Israel for about four or five hundred years. There was no prophet, there was no leader that had been inspired by the Spirit to bring them into some redemptive reality. Just quiet. The desolation had hit. But the star came and Jesus emerged on the scene and the first thing he did is he yielded himself to his father in baptism and the, and the spirit descended like a dove upon him and empowered him for the ministry of the kingdom. And Jesus decided to let his power go in those moments that was justifiably his. Paul says that he didn't equate his equality with God something to be hung on to. Rather, he let it all go and became a servant and decided to follow. And the Spirit empowered Jesus, and he began to rise up in Israel as this voice of the kingdom. And everywhere he went, the Spirit empowered him to do the redemptive work of the kingdom. Everywhere he went, he could teach with sort of this unusual authority that people couldn't get their heads around. You may know the story from Luke chapter 4 when he was in the synagogue and people just perceived of him to be a carpenter's son. He didn't have all the right background. He didn't have all the fancy letters. He hadn't done all of the supposed study. And yet when he spoke, they said, we can't deny the authority of what he's saying. It is ringing or resonating with the kingdom. Who is this man, this carpenter's son? Everywhere he went, he was like Aslan and Narnia. He brought hope and healing. Spring was blooming around him. Hope for the sick and the sinners and the disenfranchised. 
He was able to deconstruct the false power structures of the day. They hated him. The Pharisees kept coming to try to trap him, and he just kept kind of finding his way through. And eventually, they're like, we got to kill him. We can't deal with this power. He keeps deconstructing the false notions of our authority. He had authority over the spirits and the demonic kingdom, and he convicted people of sin in sort of this interesting, truthful, but graceful and invitational way. The kingdom was with him. The spirit was there. He had bent his knee to his father. And the spirit now emerging on the scene, like it did in the Old Testament, well, was there something more coming? And there was. So we enter back now into the scene, Peter, our character for this morning, who after that confession in Matthew 16, and and Jesus says, you will be the rock, and this confession will be the rock of my church, Peter continues to follow Jesus, and ultimately, if we fast forward a little bit further into the book of Acts, we see the prophecy of Joel fulfilled. We see that Peter stands up empowered by the Spirit and declares that now is the time that God's kingdom and his church would be built. So we'll put that up on the screen. It's a little longer passage, but you'll hear in this the words of Joel as well, where the context is Jesus has ascended into the heavens and he said, wait for my spirit to come upon you. This is Acts 1.8. And he says, and when the spirit does, you will be empowered to bear witness or be my witnesses to Judea and Samaria and even into the ends of the world. And then the disciples are sort of waiting. And now Acts chapter 2, here we go. When the day of Pentecost, which was a festival all the Jews were celebrating together in Jerusalem, when that day came, suddenly, and they were all together in one place, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. The spirit would be poured out. Fire is always a symbol of Yahweh or God in the text. And now these fire, these tongues of fire are going to all people. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem. There were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. They had come for Pentecost. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? I couldn't figure out who could, all these different tongues that were going on. And we go on from there. There seems like there's more to the story. What a cliffhanger. <laughs> Or maybe just wrap it up here. There we go. Okay. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? (laughs) Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible coming up next now. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Like, it could have been questionable if it was three in the afternoon, right? But it's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In these last days, God says, I will pour out on my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. And now it's not just the leaders. And now it's not just the prophets. But anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this was the foundational moment 
of the church. This was the time in which Peter then walked into his name. He had this ongoing struggle all throughout the biblical text in which he was sort of sometimes Simon in the Gospels, and sometimes he was Simon Peter, and sometimes he was Peter. But he had to wrestle that down, and moving forward, very rarely is he referred to as Simon anymore. He's walked into his name, having declared the truth that God's Spirit would be poured out on all people. And moving forward now, not just relegated to leaders and to prophets, not just relegated to the life and ministry of Jesus, but everybody could participate in the realities of the kingdom, just simply had to bend your knee. He's walked into his name. He has realized the prophetic hope of Matthew 16, that there would be a group of people with whom the gates of hell could not possibly withstand. It's a great moment in Peter's life, obviously. He gets to stand up and declare this gospel. But as beautiful as it is, it it was hardly a straight line for Peter to get there. It was hardly this sort of, he just kept going on this upward swing in which he would realize the realities of his name. For Peter was hardly a spiritual giant. You may know his stories in the text Hardly someone you'd perceive of to be worthy of ministry, at least not in the way such things are maybe too often measured even today. He's a bit of a zoo throughout the Gospels. And if you take time to read his story, as I said, you'll see his name flipping all over the place, depending on where he's coming from. He's kind of this Gollum Smeagol character. Some days, you know, Smeagol is kind of clear-eyed and maybe there's some hope for the future. And other days, he's like, my precious, it's all about me in this. But what I love in all of his Gollum and Smeagol, Simon, Simon, Peter, Peter moments is Jesus stayed with him every step of the way. Whether it was Peter or Simon or Simon Peter, Jesus was there the entire time. And not only that, he ultimately uses him to birth the church. And it's not because of how great he became by worldly measures, but it's because of the humility he learned and the failures of his life. It's not the usual pathway to power in the kingdoms of this world. The idea that you'd have to learn humility and brokenness, that failure is the only road to power, that's not how we would tend to think of things. It's build the resume. It's get the 4-0. It's get a track record of success. It is make sure everybody thinks highly of you. Network with people. Make sure you can get ahead. This is the kingdoms of this world, but in the kingdom of Jesus, it's the pathways of humility and brokenness that ultimately are often and only learned through failure. I think some of you know I I teach school both at Northwestern and at Bethel, and I've had the privilege, truly, to have these sacred times with these 18 to 22-year-olds just day after day, year after year, and one of the things that I fear for them is that they live in sort of this comparative game of faith. And when they're honest, as they sort of observe the kingdom around them, they sometimes feel as if they don't measure up. They'll never be that visible leader in the church. They'll never be that Bible study expert. They'll never maybe have fancy letters after their name. They may never be able to sing or be in missions or in some kind of ministry. And so they sort of sit back quietly and say, that's the kingdom is going to be for others, not me. I can't possibly participate. And none of those things I mentioned are bad, of course, in any way. But I wonder if sometimes we don't get confused about what constitutes true power and service in the kingdom. 
I have a lot of fancy letters after my name, and not one of them has ever empowered the kind of work that Jesus did in the kingdom. It's because greatness in the kingdom is often dramatically different than the greatness of the kingdoms of this world. And we get them confused and conflated, at least I do, way too often in terms of what matters. But in the kingdom, things get turned upside down with Jesus, where it's weird things like the least become the greatest, and the last become first, and the humble are exalted, and the widow's might somehow matters more than an entire bag of gold. See, in reading the Bible and listening to the teachings of Jesus, the road to being a spiritual giant in his kingdom, the road that which Peter took to ultimately become the rock on which the church was built, was unfortunately and fortunately a road of brokenness and humility and failure that then led to humble dependence. It's a narrow road he took. It's a road that not many people find. It's a road that not many are willing to take if they do find it, because you might just have to lose your life to to gain it. These are so different than the messages of our culture, are they not? Peter was a passionate, wonderful, volatile man who was all mixed up on what life can and should look like in the kingdom. But when he failed miserably, it was at that moment of failure that didn't disqualify him for the kingdom. It was what gave him the opportunity to actually qualify for the kingdom. Entirely different reality. And that somehow ministers to me, and maybe you, although it confronts me, and maybe you, because failure is the thing that I run from, right? And failure is the thing that I try to explain away. And failure is the thing that I justify. And failure is the thing that I blame on somebody else. And failure is the thing that I cannot do in order to be successful in any walk of life. You cannot fail in business or in teaching or in friendships or whatever it is. If you do that, you are disqualified. And yet for Peter, it was the very thing that qualified him for the kingdom. Because the last become first and the humble are exalted. And there's a widow's bag, a might that is more than a bag of gold. And he learned that, and tell some of his stories in just a minute, he learned that all throughout the gospel. He learned the central truth of what Jesus' first words were when he stood up and gave that Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He said, let me start here. The kingdom of God is at hand, and I'm going to tell you a little secret about the way this whole, thing's worked, this whole thing works. It's blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Which from that language, if you had heard it in Jesus' language at the time, it would have likely sounded like, blessed are those that in humility know they don't have what it takes. For to them, the kingdom of God begins to unfold. See, the way to the kingdom is not fancy letters or perfect quiet times. The way to the kingdom is one way, and it's brokenness. And sometimes, at least for me, it takes a long time to learn. And not only do I learn it once, but it becomes a lifetime. (laughs) of that. So we see this in some of the stories of Peter's life, for and all in our remaining time, kind of walk through each of these beautiful and horrible and lovely and powerful and difficult stories of failure that ultimately led him to the place where he could stand up in this moment when this prophetic movement of the Spirit began to create the church. All of these prepared him for that. They didn't just qualify him for that. These failures prepared him. We see a lot in there. They'll Think turn up on the screen as well that the first time we see Peter fail is in the Gospel of Luke, where he shows up as a fisherman, right? And it's been a terrible day out in the waters. His nets have been empty, nothing doing there, and Jesus comes by and says, why don't you go ahead and chuck those nets into the water one more time? 
And Peter's like, oh, give me a break. Now that's from the Greek uh, living Bible translation. <laughs> he, he's, he's a bit uh, doubtful in these moments. I've been fishing all day. Are you kidding me? Throw him back in there again. And he throws the nets in the waters. And what happens? The fish come in to such an extent. And they're so heavy that the boat begins to sink. And Peter, I think, like many of us, when we doubt and when we're confused, gets up and he says, Jesus, please depart from me. I can't be with you. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh. You just learned that here. Now you follow me and I will actually make you fishers of men. You saw the power I can do here. You just wait until I pour out the realities of me into you to fish for man. And I love the humanity of this story because, again, I think about how many times I've been afraid or doubtful to step into what might be next. You know, a season of life ends. You don't know where you're headed. You don't know where you're going. And if you're like me, I have this wonderful, not-so-holy amnesia that, I don't know, God may have actually been faithful in the past. <laughs> Forget that really easily, right? Take a little cue from the Israelites. They were just like, they would build little monuments from time to time to just, in, in representation, symbolically, of God's faithfulness in the past. I would just suggest that if you're like me and you have amnesia relative to God's ongoing faithfulness in our lives, when that moment happens, just build something physical, you know, a little tower of stones in your yard that you can turn back to and say, oh, I, I remember God is faithful now. Maybe in my doubts and my confusion and my understandable humanity, maybe I could say yes one more time to stepping in these waters. Maybe it's not over for me. Maybe I can do that. Peter learned that in these moments. He learned it through the failure of not trusting Jesus about the fish. <laughs> but he learned something deep in that. A second story that is difficult to read in some levels in the text, happens actually right after he gives this beautiful confession of faith in Matthew 16 when he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It's this incredible moment. I mean, Peter has succeeded in identifying and articulating the realities of Jesus in this moment in front of all of his peers. It couldn't have been a better moment for him, right? And then Jesus goes on to say some things like, the Son of Man is going to have to suffer and to die. And and Peter says, no way. Give me a break. That can't happen. Are you kidding me? And Peter turns to him, or Jesus turns to Peter and says, get thee behind me, Satan. (laughs) Ouch. On that. And he says, you know, Peter, there's something you got to learn about this. I know that you just declared that I am the Messiah, but I'm going to teach you right now and right here that I'm not going to be the kind of Messiah you think. I am not here to restore your earthly power so that you have freedom from the Roman oppression. I'm here to give you a kind of kingdom that will not end, and it's the kind of kingdom that the gates of hell cannot even prevail against. But you're going to have to learn some things. So here's what you need to learn. You want to participate in my kingdom. If you want to be my disciple, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life surely will lose it. But whoever wants to lose their life for my sake will surely find it. What good will it be if you gained the power of the entire world and yet you forfeited your soul? And I think what I love about this story is success is always that dangerous place, isn't it? You don't even have to be in the kingdom to know that. Success organizationally or in a business or something is always the riskiest place because you forget what actually matters. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't celebrate success. We really should. We should have great parties around success, but there can be this little subtlety with success in which you begin to shift sort of how that success happened for and change it for something different. I know how often in the classroom that maybe on a Tuesday morning, it was a great class. 
and there was insights and wisdom and conversation, and I would leave just like, wow, that was exactly what I would hope for. You could see kids beginning to have their eyes sparkle again a little bit and come to life, and I walk away just saying, this was great, and then I get ready for Thursday, and I go into Thursday morning's class, and then it's just rubbish, the whole thing. I start talking and I feel like my words are just like, there's just no life to them. And I think, what just happened? And then, you know, the amnesia finally kind of clears again a little bit. And I remember, oh, hang on, uh, Peter. Um, It was never your great content that could be able to maybe, you know, hit the hearts of the students. It was never your great teaching style and all the things that you can subtly swap for the power of the kingdom. And humbled yet again. And because this is my name here, I'm like, yep, I'm Simon uh, again (laughs) in this. Thankfully, God is a God of amazing grace. And he keeps walking us in the journey. But I'm mindful that at the same time, God is not mocked. And when we think we can start doing this journey on our own, there comes that rebuke. Remember, you got to pick up your cross and follow me. And it's not a rebuke because God needs us to restore his honor or some, it's, it's a gentle rebuke. It's a reminder that we can't deal with the organized and disorganized evils of this world on our own. We need the power of the spirit to walk this out. There's nothing about fancy letters or resumes that can deal with the darkness around us. And so even when those rebukes come and are painful, therefore are good. I love the Hebrews passage and don't like it at all. When God, it says that don't, don't despise the discipline of the Father. For when He does this, He's doing that for your good. Peter learned that in these moments. Third story is when Peter was standing with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's one of my favorite stories again, and he is the, watching Jesus be the victim of Judas's traitorous behavior. And even though he had done nothing wrong, Jesus was arrested. And Peter stood up, maybe admirably, uh, admirably so, and he decides to raise his sword and cut off the guard's ear. <laughs> I don't really know what he was trying to accomplish in that moment. There's a lot of guards. But man, he, he swung one for the kingdom in this moment. And Jesus stopped him immediately and said, hang on, I get it. But he stooped down and he healed this man's ear. He healed the ear of his oppressor. Peter was victimized in these moments, and he chose the road of power and violence in return. It's the understandable option. I know those very, very few times in my life that I've experienced a bit of injustice, even a whisper of it. My immediate response is anger. How dare you! (laughs) And then I, I can really stew in that for a very long time, understandably so. It's certainly the common American option and the language of our day. That's not the language of the kingdom. There's a different secret there. Jesus taught us to meet injustice with humble love. He even healed his oppressors. Martin Luther King Jr. is a person who understood and practiced this. He had a quote that when I first read it, it's hung with me to this day. It's challenged me in this. I don't even know for sure how to walk this out. But Martin Luther King said this, The ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, violence multiplies it. Through violence you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie, nor can you establish the truth. Through violence you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of the stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light 
can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. I don't know what would be required in the kingdom to find that kind of love even for your oppressors. The understandable option is anger. The kingdom option is love. It might take some humility, some ways of seeing the world, same kind of ways Jesus must have saw the world when he hung on that cross. And what did he do? He looked out and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Because only humility and not a desire for power that brings us to those places. Fourth and final story is the famous story of Peter's denial. And it is this story that is now the threshold moment where Peter's name is going to change. You may know the story. It comes at a time when Jesus says in the upper room, he says, one of you is going to betray me. (laughs) And Peter, being this wonderful, passionate, volatile man, as I said that he is, he stands up, I will never deny you, Lord. You know, I can just picture him sort of shouting this out with vim and vigor. And after saying that, of course, we know what happened. Sitting by the fire as Jesus is arrested, Peter is associated then with Jesus. And he asks these questions, aren't you a friend of Jesus? And Peter says, well, no, I am not. And no, I am not. And three times he denies Jesus. He thought what he, he had what it took to walk it out. He'd even spent all of these years with Jesus. And when that moment came, he didn't. And after that last denial, the rooster croaked. cock a doodle doo I think about how many times that, again, I might fall into the temptation of a Peter version of discipleship. Maybe some concern in my life, some failure in my life, or I'm going to set up and have some sort of, you know, New Year's resolution that seems to happen about 175 times in my spiritual journey each year. Tomorrow, I'm going to change it. Tomorrow, I'm going to get up with the rise of the sun by a pool of liquid and read Philippians and be holy. Well, maybe I don't say that, but I might be thinking that somewhere. I'm really going to do this. I, I can kind of enter into this Braveheart form of discipleship, right? I can, I will, freedom for me, and all of this. And then I do that for maybe a couple days, and all of a sudden, cock-a-doodle-doo, the roosters crowed in my life again. You know, it's this backwards, upside-down thing of the kingdom that I think I just don't often get enough, is that failure is not an invitation to try harder. Failure is an invitation to humble brokenness. It's not an invitation to try harder. It's, a, it's an invitation to humble brokenness. Where maybe then those first words of the Sermon on the Mount, here's the deal. Am I to be part of my kingdom? Blessed are those who know they don't have what it takes. For them, the kingdom begins to unfold. You can't deal with the organized and disorganized evils of this world, yourself and your heart around you. It's only humble brokenness that will allow my spirit to be poured out on you. But then imagine what could happen if that's true. Because the way of the kingdom is the way of brokenness. The way of the kingdom is to bend one's knee. And Peter learned that in spectacular fashion when he denied the very Lord that he was passionately serving. And for me, failure is too often that teacher in my life. The massive failure of denying Jesus for Peter, actually, though, is what allowed him to finally walk into his name. He didn't study the Torah a bunch more, and Jesus says, now you're ready, you graduated with your MDiv. It was the failure that Jesus said, now you are ready. And one of the most beautiful and hopeful stories of the biblical text, at the end of John's Gospel, we see now Peter meeting his risen Lord in the same space for the first time since the denial. And Jesus is walking towards him on that beach. I can't imagine 
Peter in those moments, could you possibly look up into the eyes of your savior, your friend that you just denied, full-throated around that fire? Peter, Jesus comes, he does not gloss over, he doesn't ignore, but he's not there to restore his honor either. God doesn't need his honor restored when we sin. I think God is fairly secure in God's self. Rather, in our sin, God moves right towards us on those beaches of our lives and invites us to reconciliation if we are willing. Every time. And so Jesus asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times to heal the three denials. And each time Jesus says yes, and, or Peter says yes, and Jesus says, then just feed my sheep. It's time. It's time. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Take on the role of your name, Peter. It's really encouraging that Peter wasn't shoved into the spiritual doghouse for his failure, right? We're going to set you, uh, you know, for a little kingdom time out here, probably about a year and a half for that one. No, now it's time to build the church. In your brokenness and in your humility, Peter, now is the time. I'm going to be leaving in just a second, and my spirit's going to come, and I'm going to use you to proclaim the beautiful prophecy of Joel that my spirit's coming for all people. And anybody who wants to participate can. All you need to do is just bend your knee and say yes to it. Failures aside, they matter, but they're not the end of the story. There's always hope and always future in the beautiful kingdom of Jesus. That tomb is empty. It's empty. Death has been beaten. There's nothing that can stand in the way of future. Then calls to mind just a few things as we get ready to wrap this up. A few things I think that we, I, all of us can learn from this about the church. The one, as I've said, it's the central role of humility and brokenness for the kingdom. You want in? Bend your knee. (laughs) I don't bend my knee too regularly, so maybe a bit of failure might help. But I love what Paul had to say. He says, you know, let me tell you about this church. Let me remind you a bit about who's part of this deal. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise and the weak things of this world to shame the strong so we don't get confused. God chooses the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. It's always been the way of the kingdom. Second, failure is what often teaches us humility. Um, it may be the worst prayer that you could possibly pray. <laughs> but if it's hard to find that space in our spirit to bend our knee, um, pray for a bit of failure. Like, when's the last time we did that one, right? We're always praying for strength and, you know, purpose and power. Um, maybe a little failure would be helpful. Yuck. Failure does not disqualify us. Point number three. It's actually what enables us, as Jesus restores us, to play a role in his kingdom. We're not disqualified. I'm sure, like me, many of you have pasts in here that if the skeletons came out of that closet, it wouldn't be really exciting to watch them dance around the room. (laughs) But there's no failure ever, once, that disqualifies us from the kingdom. Not even once. Tomb's empty. Death has been beaten. Sin has been cast aside. There's a power at work that restores and redeems all day long. There is nothing that can stand in the way, because if it could, then the cross and the resurrection is useless. Last thing is this. The church is not a building. And I love being able to say this in this space. I'm just going to say out loud that I get an opportunity to be with a lot of different people in churches and ministries, and um, rare is the space that I can say that mm, there's not a lot of confusion. (laughs) 
There's not a lot of confusion. I love my time with Kevin. I love my time with you. I love my time in worship. If there's a sense of the Spirit blowing in here, and I think there is, it's because there's not a confusion that the church is some building or organization or an institution with a sign and a steeple. Those things, I get it, but they're organizations. Too often they masquerade as the church. We don't go to church. We, we are the church. We're the people of God following Jesus, bending our knee. Not many wise or noble among us. But when that happens, there is a group of people bonded together, singing amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And the Spirit begins to pour out, and I can't imagine a more needed reality for our world today. We could use a little bit of sane teaching, right? A little bit of wisdom. A little bit of authority that goes beyond anything of the resumes of this world. We could use a little hope for the disenfranchised and the poor and the cast aside. We could use a little understanding of what goes on in the spiritual realm anyway. I'm not sure, but when the Spirit was poured out upon Jesus, all of this happened. And he said, it's coming for all of you. Even your kids can be part of it. Kids don't get the junior Holy Spirit. Poured out among all people. Spirit bears much fruit among his followers. We're going to have a building in which to meet. There's a sign that tells us what the church is. But the church isn't the building of the institution. It's the people in whom the spirit flows. So much more could probably be said this morning. Kevin should have given me 13 weeks for this uh, series. But so be it. Uh, I, I think in wrapping up, the thing that I would say is this, and reiterate again, that if you're one who, like me, will walk through failures and struggles in your life, resist the temptation to make a bunch of Simon Braveheart-like commitments that you're going to do it better tomorrow. Let the failure be an invitation. Let the failure and the discouragement be an invitation to bend your knee. Because in those places, and in that humility, Jesus says, blessed are you, you who are poor in spirit. For I promise you the wonder of my kingdom can unfold. And when that happens, here's what I know will happen in your life. The gates of hell cannot even stand against that. That's what it means to be the church even some 2,000 years after Peter showed us the way of humility and power in the kingdom. And nothing has changed today.